HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. This week's episode of Meat in 3 is inspired by the reemergence of Cicada Brood 10. We're talking all about insects. Some people are calling crickets the gateway bug because that's a great introduction to what edible insects is all about. So we found detectable levels of cesium-137 in 68 of 122 total honey samples that we had. Ah, what is that? Is it tarantula? No, what is it? It's a tarantula. Oh, and they're going to eat it? No, 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 no. Listen to Meat and 3 wherever you get your podcasts. This is Meant to be Eaten, a Gastronomica podcast on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host for today, Paula Johnson, Curator of Food History at the Smithsonian's National Museum of American History. This episode is part of a special series in collaboration with Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies. Our new issue, Volume 21.2, features articles on topics that include commensality and creative collaboration, the politics of food systems, race and representation, and much more. This is the last in a series of conversations relating to this issue, but please join hosts from the Gastronomica Editorial Collective as we talk with authors in the weeks ahead. My guest this week is Constanza Ocampo-Rader, an environmental anthropologist interested in exploring the unexpected connections between society, culture, and local ecological dynamics. Her article, When the Rainbows Bring the Crawfish, is one of my favorite in this issue, and I'm delighted to be hosting this conversation. Constanza, thank you for joining us, and welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to have this conversation, Paula. Great. I think we need to dive right in. Uh, Can you tell us briefly what you do as an environmental anthropologist and where you're based? Yes, of course. Um, Well, I'm based currently in Minnesota. I teach at Carleton College. 
but most of my work has for the longest time focused on the ways in which, you know, resource-based populations relate to their local environments and what are the kind of, you know, ways in which they read the environment, understand the environment and how they make decisions deciding, you know, depending on what, you know, the type of ecosystem or habitats they're living in. And for the longest time, most of my work was based on tropical forests. So I started working in Peru about 20 years ago. And then as I kind of fell in love with Peru, I started really paying attention to all the different kind of biomes that exist in that country and expanded from tropical forests into other ecosystems like coastal environments, but also in these inter-Andean valleys. So most of my work is now taking place in Peru, and I'm expanding a little bit into Mexico as well. Wow, 20 years. That's an amazing amount of time before all of the work that you've been doing. Your wonderful article is clearly based on field research conducted over these many years. Can you talk about what drew you to Peru and to this complex story of the Camarones and the people who catch them? Yes, absolutely. Um, it's it's interesting because the Camaronero situation, they weren't my, and they still are not my prim- primary research um, field site. I mm. came to Peru initially because I was in love with the Amazon. So I wanted to do my dissertation in the Amazon. And, you know, I was very much set to do work either in Peru, in, in Brazil or in Colombia. But at the time I started doing research, it was a little bit dangerous to work in in Colombia because of FARC. And in Brazil, it was really complicated to get research um, um, permits. So my advisor and I just started looking at other options. And I had never thought of Peru as a rainforest environment. And actually, 60% of the country is rainforest. So I went and explored it. And I really just absolutely loved the story. And as I started, you know, I worked there for many years, but I started traveling the country and really looking at, you know, the way in which conservation in general and environmental movements was moving throughout the country. And it very much started in the 80s, 90s, very much focused on biodiversity conservation. But as other tendencies, such as ecosystem services or a focus on water, really started, you know, influencing the way policies were taking place in the country, they started moving up into the Andes into where, you know, there was a big, big focus on water. So I started to explore, you know, what was this sort of aspect about water. It's very tied to agricultural production. And I also absolutely love eating. So it was at that moment that I arrived to Lunawana. There's many of these valleys. This this just happens to be one of the ones that is closest to Lima. And they're amazing to travel through. I grew up in Mexico and we have valleys, but the river valleys in Peru are very um, different. You go from, you know, dunes, like literal dunes, sand dunes, and suddenly you just drop into these lush, lush green valleys that are these, you know, green, you know, rivers that go all the way up into the highest areas of the, um, of the, of the Andean mountains. And that's where these crayfish um, traditions exist and also a lot of other agricultural production. So that's how I arrived to it. And I was very interested to, to learn that there was such a, a, a strong, tradition around eating crayfish, because to me, they're very special and they were very localized. But throughout Peru, people eat them and people were driving a very far way to actually be able to to get to these river valleys to eat crayfish. And when I got there and started asking a little bit about it, you know, it turned, they had all these interesting little things like that they were caught by hand, that, you know, that these are, there's guilds that specify that are, are, 
are focused on crawfish, you know, gathering. And so I thought to myself, I'm like, that's very interesting. Because at the same time, that river had been making the news on different, you know, moments about a hydroelectric plant that was working there. Also, there's always talk about diverting the river in order to water bigger agricultural projects. So I thought it was one of these perfect situations in which you have what we call in environmental anthropology, a political ecology of a little valley. And it was very constrained, you know, very small. It was doable. So I basically went and asked who was the president of the Camaroneros Guild. Um, He was very easy to find. And I started asking questions like, you know, what, how do you guys work? Why are you organized? What are the type of, you know, problems you have or opportunities? And they were incredibly open to talk, you know, and, and in fact, it turns out that they've, they're often featured in magazines, you know, because these, these um, crawfish are very beautiful to see in the dishes. And at that time, it was coinciding with the gastronomic revival in Peru. So they were very, very willing to talk. So after that initial talk, um, um, contact, I just set up some time and I started going and visiting and having these, you know, longer sort of periods of time where I could actually go with them, you know, do long, longer interviews and really start investigating, if you will. Wow. Did you, um, I, I'm curious about how you uh, continued to gain the trust of the Camaroneros and how you navigated the complex relationships with the other stakeholders while you were doing this uh, research? Yes. Now, that was very interesting because every time I do research, you know, there are these really interesting sort of entanglements that you encounter in the field, and you don't really know how they're going to manifest. So when I work with Native peoples, you know, there's a lot of issues about you know, intellectual rights, about getting proper permission. There's a lot of negotiation that has to take place with people within the community. Um, Here, it was slightly different because one, there weren't any other researchers there. I often have to negotiate my work with other anthropologists and not even just anthropologists, but biologists, ecologists, anybody, or just development workers that are in the place. Um, Here, there wasn't anyone. So they were kind of very intrigued to begin with that somebody was interested in interviewing them and interviewing them in the depth that I was going to interview them. So initially, when they said yes to me, starting to talk to them, they were surprised how long and how intricate my interviews are because I do seasonal calendars. We look at, we do cultural mapping. And I had a lot of, you know, kind of much more in-depth questions about how they relate to the field. And they are people who are very connected to this place. So they love talking about it. They loved having somebody who could ask them about what was their ethnicity? Like, are they coastal? Are they Indian? You know, and in this case, they see themselves as being in between. And this kind of becomes an an identity that they understand, but they often get frustrated with others not understanding. So that really opened up, you know, uh, rich conversations. And then once, you know, as any anthropologist or ethnographer finds out, is that when you start hanging out with people, that sort of thick hanging out, and you go up and down, and you get in the river with them, and you go into the kitchen to see how they're cooking it, you know, people really appreciate that because you have to do it with a lot of trust and and with a lot of respect to gain their trust. And I really love getting to know people and really letting them 
tell us about a life that is often hidden from us. You know, these are people who are not incredibly wealthy. They're sort of in the background in many ways, because even though they're the ones that catch the shrimp, they're not really the one, the crayfish, they're not really the ones that get all the glory. It's more like the kitchens or the the, the chefs, you know. So they love talking and they love talking about their dreams. And um, so it was really easy for me to start talking to them. Now, where it got a little bit complicated is that I expected them to have a particular kind of, you know, natural alliances with other stakeholders um, that I assumed would be the people that they would feel the most comfortable working with. So for example, if they were so vested in keeping the crayfish populations viable, I thought that they would work really well with the Ministry of Tourism or with some of the other people in the township that I had interviewed that were really vested in making this space a kind of ecotourism destination. But instead, what I found is that they had allyships and, you know, relationships with unexpected stakeholders, such as some people in the mine or some people up in the in the um, hydroelectric plant, and that some people like, you know, restaurant owners or, you know, politicians in the town who are very vested in having crawfish as part of, you know, the sort of culinary travel experience, they were really, you know, there was a contentious relationship with them. And so often it was for me harder to interview the restaurant owners and the politicians than the camaroneros. The camaroneros were very open, very honest, but the other people, you know, treated them a little bit like less than, and, you know, they expected them to just fall into line. Whereas with the mine and the, and the hydroelectric plant, it turned out that they were the two stakeholders that were kind of listening to them. And they were giving them these other options, like they were promising them to give them resources to, to, um, to farm the crayfish if they had to divert the river or something like that, which is not ideal, right? But, but, you know, they were at least listening to them and gave them some space. So it became really tricky for me to know who was allied with whom and how those relationships really played out because they weren't as straightforward as I would have expected them to be when I started out there. Wow, that is amazing. I wonder uh, for our listeners um, who haven't may, may not have seen the article, your article is beautifully illustrated and uh, with Luna Juana, the beautiful um, river and um, the the place, but it also shows um, the Camaroneros. And I think it would be great for you to just describe how they catch these crawfish one by one in this incredibly cold water, often at night. Yes, um, it is. <laughs> and did you do it with them? Were you in the in the water with them at those times? You know, well, let me tell you, like, you know, we often as anthropologists, we talk about participant observation. And often what's happening is that you're trying to participate and you're not doing a very good job. So, yes, I went up with them a couple of times um, when they, when it's at nighttime. These are big boulders um, and um, rapid moving water. And it's quite cold. And at night, you know, it's not the easiest thing to navigate. So I I went up with them upstream a couple of times to see how they would do it. They go up really 
you know, late, they go there around nine and they might not get back home sometimes till, you know, four or five in the morning. So it's a whole night, you know, expedition. And, um, and it's, I don't want to say it's super dangerous, but it would have definitely not been a good idea for me to try to see how I would, you know, navigate, but, um, but they're pretty good at it. So I did learn how to do it down in the river um, near where they are. So generally what happens is that they have to go, depending on how the river is behaving, they decide on how far up um, they actually go in order to catch them. So if it's a pretty good, and uh, and generally the higher up the river, the bigger the crayfish are going to be. So they will often travel about two hours up into the mountains. They will go into a place where they can actually access the river because there are agricultural farms throughout the entire river. So you don't necessarily have access everywhere. And then they put on these pieces of wetsuits, basically, that they have been, you know, buying or obtaining in different ways. And it's really interesting, you know, I've scuba dived before, and you might actually put some, you know, some talcum powder in order to slip things on when you're going into, you know, very cold waters. But in this case, they lined themselves with plastic bags first to slip it on. And they put these, you know, wetsuits on, they often have um, what I call fancy shoes. So they need hard shoes to step on the boulders. So they're often old, you know, fancy men's shoes, you know, that are leather and hard. So if they they don't get their toes stabbed once they're actually, you know, roaming and um, swimming through the boulders. And once they're in the well, they have a little lamp that they put on there. They have their, their, their visor or their goggles. They have a lamp with batteries in the back of their, of their suit. Um, they're all, you know, artisanally, as I call, you know, kept together and made waterproof by using duct tape or plastic bags. And then they have a long net that they hook in the back of their waist, where, you know, as they're, you know, scouring the river and finding the crayfish, you often can't see the crayfish, but they feel them, you know, it depends on how murky the water is, they'll grab them and put them in the bag, in the back of their actual bag, you know, and they're actually pretty good at telling what size is a decent size, because you don't want to get with something that's much smaller than your hand, for example. So they don't have a ruler or anything like they would in the lobster industry, a gauge to actually know what the size is, but they can tell by what they feel like. And so they, they basically float through looking in and they're just kind of bopping in and out, bopping in and out. And in the article, I have pictures of them doing it. They did a demonstration for me um, down river during the day. So you can see them, you know, just moving down and they can get a lot, you know, they can pick up, you know, one night they can pick up almost over a hundred dollars worth of crayfish if it's a, if it's a pretty good night. Um, but it's cold and it's a lot of work. Mm. Thank you for that. At this point, we're going to take a short break and we'll be back in just a moment. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. 
Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. And we're back. This is Meant to be Eaten with Paula Johnson talking with Constanza Ocampo-Rader about their article, When the Rainbows Bring the Crawfish, available in the current issue of Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies. Constanza, I have to ask about the title of your article and, and why it was so important to frame your piece in such an evocative and lyrical way. Talk a bit, if you would, about the aesthetics of place, which by the way, you've woven into your article so beautifully and successfully. Yes, absolutely. I really appreciate this question because I I do feel that sometimes when we talk about human nature relationships that, you know, the word environment has become this very rigid category that we don't really, you know, we have a hard time readily understanding the sensuality behind it, the humanity behind it. And just, you know, all the different, you know, the roles that the environment has for us. So I've struggled with that as an environmental anthropologist, because I know that what I'm up against is that when we talk about environmental issues, when we talk about our relationship with the environment, we simply don't have a lot of words to really expand beyond certain tropes that come from a very particular kind of environmental relationship. So for example, I think that at least in the West, we're very comfortable talking about trees, for example, or talking about, you know, big open spaces and what it means like to be in the environment alone and these sort of big, deep, you know, um, personal moments in which we commune with nature. But that is a very Western perspective and that there's other ways in which we can enjoy the environment or that these human environmental relationships manifest. They're often contradictory. They often don't emerge out of economic needs, you know, or they don't emerge out of, you know, a particular Western economic grammar in which everything we see has to be brought back and explained through ecological frameworks or biological frameworks. And for somebody like me, who's number one, I'm not North American. I mean, I am North American because I'm Mexican, but I'm not U.S. North American. You know, I sometimes feel that my relationship with food or my relationship with nature is constrained by the ways in which we are able to talk about human natural relationships. And I really wanted to expand that. And the best thing I could think up with was to come up with this idea of what I think of as called, um, of writing ethnographic products through this lens of magical realism. So my goal is to really start to write environmental, you know, relationship through a magical realism ethnographic lens in which I resist the urge 
to explain everything. And why explain everything is that when we talk about how the rainbows, you know, guide the crave, um, the the caramaroneros in order to understand if what is the type of river movements that are happening upstream. You know, initially when I learned about them looking up into the sky and reading different kinds of of rainbows, my initial inclination was like, I'm going to go find out everything there is about, you know, rainbows, and I'm going to categorize them, I'm going to find the um, meteorological way in which rainforests exist, I'm I'm sorry, rainbows uh, manifest in there, I'm going to categorize them, and maybe they'll have different names for it. And I was going about it in this very sort of Western, you know, hierarchy. And then at that point, you know, they would look at me like, why is she so obsessed with understanding the, the, the shape of the of the crave of the of the rainbows and so i had to let go and lean into a world in which you know we don't need to explain within the sort of academic edges and i even talk about that in one of the footnotes in my article about like if you're wondering more about this just don't you know they look at them and they follow it and it's a whole group of feelings and interactions and conversations that guide them through this day-to-day relationship with the river and the cray ship themselves. And in fact, they see themselves reflected by the life of the crayfish. It's a tough life for these little creatures as well. They're born in the sea. They have to crawl up the river. You know, they're over-harvested. Um, they often would talk about how they they feel kinship with them because not everybody, they respect them when they want to eat them, but then they don't respect their entire cycle. So I think it's the entire package that really lends itself to understand what motivates people to do the things we do and that not everything is motivated by, you know, money or fame or, or, you know, or trying to find some sort of, you know, very rigid form of sustainability, but that these are entangled forms of knowing they're contradictory, they're unexpected. And I thought that the rainbow is just such an ephemeral event as well. And we don't quite know, you know, you try to look at where it ends, where it, begins and it's hard to pinpoint but we all know it's there and so I just thought it would be the perfect title for the piece if you will yes thank you so much and the piece really reflects the respect that you have and the time that you've spent listening and observing and um, allowing the both the speech and the actions of the camaroneros to tell the story and to paint the picture of this place um, and it's just so beautifully done. Um, so thank you for that. I know we're, we need to move on and we have to talk about the main culinary dish associated with the harvest of camarones, the chupa de camarón. Tell us about this dish, dish, which you call the Peruvian biodiversity in a bowl. Oh, yes. I mean, it's the first time I had it. I just about passed out. I I mean, it was just so unexpected, so wonderful, so unique. I mean, in a in a nutshell, it's kind of like a Peruvian lobster bisque. It is a sort of milk based, you know, shellfish stew. But that's the limit to how I can actually compare it. Because number one, it is made out of crawfish and they're big and they are just so unique to their taste you know like even now that i've eaten so many 
camarones in Peru, um, when I compare them to Louisiana crayfish, there's a difference in the flavor. And these are just, you know, slightly, you know, sweet. They're just absolutely beautiful. I mean, they're big enough that you can get actually a lot of meat from the, um, the, the, the claws themselves, which, you know, when you go down to Louisiana and stuff, you have to really work to get the big ones. Um, and then the way it is prepared, it has a little bit of a base of hot peppers in it, generally ají limo. And I want to point out for those of you who don't know Peruvian hot peppers, they are nothing like the hot peppers we're used to. I mean, these are entirely different varieties than the fare that we're used to getting from Central and Mexico in particular. So they have already a different taste. You know, even if they use ají amarillo, they're a little bit fruitier. I mean, that in itself is different. They um, they include all these different pieces. So you have a, always a piece of potato, for example, and it has to be a certain variety of potato. And people, when they're eating it, they comment on like, it's the right starchiness, you know, and they, and you can compare it. It's like, it's not from like this place. It's not from that place. It's like the right one. Um, they have a piece of corn on the cob, what they call in Peru, a choclo. And these are not the giant choclos that you get in Cusco, but they're the ones from this place. They're in between. And they, again, have this smooth starchiness that I... I, I don't even know how to explain it. Like that's when I know that I start really knowing a place that when you don't, I can taste it and I can imagine what it feels like to eat, but I don't have the right words sometimes to really describe it. So I had to work really hard in trying to describe this dish in a way that made it justice. So you have this, you know, corn on the cob, they put rice in it. They, um, they put the, obviously they always cook it with the shells of the crawfish. Even if at the end of it, you might ask for them to remove the shells, the shells are really important. And the women, when they're cooking it, they talk about the moment in which the flavor of the, of the crayfish is actually released and put into the soup. And, um, and you have, you can put a little bit of lime into it, but it has so many different ingredients. Sometimes it has a little bit of algae. It often has, you know, huevera de pescado. So it has a little bit of fish roe in it and the whole trick of eating it. And they're huge. Like you get it and you don't even know where to begin. And you start sort of slowly working your way around this dish. And it's, the whole point is that you have to kind of portion out all the pieces. So you don't want to eat the, the corn on the cob all in one sitting. You don't want to eat the whole potato. You want to sort of parson it out as you're actually eating it and, you know, and you're mixing it during the time. And it is just, it's so hearty and it's so delicious. And it's just, to me, it just emphasizes this marriage of the Andes with the coast, you know, which is what Peru has been for so long. It's this very interesting relationship between coastal ways of being and Andean ways of being. And it's also just beautiful. I mean, it's this beautiful pink and the crayfish. I always put a couple of big crawfish at the top, you know, like these beautiful specimens and, you know, and people dig in and you're expected to kind of slurp and eat your way through it. I mean, this is not a an elegant dish to eat. And in fact, if you try to be a little bit elegant about it, people will look down on you. They're like, why aren't you enjoying this properly? So you want to suck, you know, the, 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 um, the juices from the head of the crawfish and you want to, you want to make sure nothing is left over. So there's a lot of slurping and splashing and it is just, you know, an extravaganza in itself, but it also just reflects everything that's around there. You cannot have that dish without having the people and that entire valley in existence at the same time. Beautiful. 
So is this uh, version of Chupé de Camarón part of the gastronomic revival in Peru? How does that, um, how do the two worlds um, unite? Yes. Oh, that is such a good question. So part of the gastronomic um, revival of Peru is really sort of, you know, emphasizing that Peruvian food is very unique. You know, they they realize that there are these sort of, you know, recognized international cuisines that are very unique. And they tend to be places that have very unique sort of combinations of, you know, places with high biological diversity, high, you know, um, cultural diversity, and also so often places that are, you know, that have had some sort of culinary exchanges, either by colonial encounters or because they're close to the silk trade or something along those lines. You know, good cuisine comes from places in which, you know, you're you're uniting nature, people, and different kinds of people. So Peru very much has that. It's just like Mexico. I mean, you have pre-Columbian pieces, you have, you know, the, the Spanish, you know, cuisine. You also have the arrival of a lot of, you know, other non-Spanish Europeans and other, you know, people like the Japanese and the Chinese into this area. And, you know, and they've mixed together to create these really elaborate cuisines. But nobody really knows about Peruvian cuisine until I would say maybe 10 years. And even your average person doesn't really know it um, as well. The worst insult you can tell a Peruvian is to say like, oh, is it like Mexican food? Like it's not like Mexican food, you know? So the gastronomic revival has really been about revalorizing something that Peruvians have always known about. So Peruvian food, Peruvians always love their food. If you know somebody who's Peruvian, you will know that they will talk about their food. And so the gastronomic revival was about trying to bring this up to, you know, to national recognition in order to kind of create a new sort of sustainable development and economic, you know, move for the country itself, because it also coincides with the um, country opening up after, you know, a very long time of being shut down because of terrorism and, you know, political unrest. And, um, and also as a way for them to kind of showcase their country to the rest of the world. So it is linked in the sense that it is very unique, but to them it's always been a Peruvian thing. So the way that the gastronomic revival has kind of taken on quintessential dishes like the chupa de camarón is that on one hand they're trying to incentivate national consumption and on the other hand they're also trying to do something internationally. But with certain dishes like chupes, you know, they want to be able to, you know, sometimes keep it within the country itself. I argue in the article that not everything has to necessarily be shared. And other countries have done this, like Brazil has internal markets for certain products that are only intended to be for Brazilians. And as a tourist, if you can come in and enjoy it, that's great, right? But this is really to kind of have Peruvians recognize that they have a place to be there, that this is their country, that it's very unique. And people have really latched on to it. So at Chupa Camarones, I've, I've seen, you know, I have these old, old recipes, and it's been around for a very, very long time. It's just that now when people talk about it, they emphasize a sense of place and just how Peruvian it is. And, um, and so, you know, you might see it represented in these high-end restaurants that are in Lima and so forth. They tend to be a little bit more um, style 
realized, you know, like we, we call it like Frenched up in a way. But really, when you talk to Peruvians, they will talk about how delicious it does taste to go into one of these river valleys. So the whole experience is about going into the El Campo, you know, into the into the rural areas to enjoy this. And they do that for many different, you know, dishes. But this is one particular that people really love and enjoy along the coast. Oh, you have left us wanting more, that's for sure. But our time is up. Thank you, Constanza, for joining us. What a pleasure it's been. Listeners can read the full article, and I hope you will, in Gastronomica, the Journal for Food Studies, Volume 21.2. For more details, visit gastronomica.org. Thank you for listening, and please stay tuned for further summer episodes from Gastronomica on Meant to be Eaten. Meant to be Eaten is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.